Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Let's be in the Q&A. So uh, welcome to the Cynica Podcast, where we're going to be continuing uh, last week's show. Uh, <laughs> now, now with the, uh, the, the Q&A section from uh, our live show. Um, so yeah, come up, tell us your name, tell us what, what, where you're from real quickly, and, and, um, and fire away. Say it loud, you don't have another microphone there. So, Hi, my name is Ning. I'm from the Danish Embassy. Um, I would like to know, you hinted that you were leaving China. And with this lovely podcast going on, what's going to happen to Silica? We're going to continue doing it. Jeremy and I had a good long heart to heart last night, and we decided there's absolutely no reason not to. I'm going to be back quite often, maybe you know two or three weeks, a quarter, and I will definitely you know pack in a lot of recordings on there. There's also a, a, a pretty sizable China watching community in San Francisco Bay Area. And so we'll do, do shows. We were already talking about what gear we'll be buying for our home studios there, and we'll continue the show. Don't worry, we will not deprive you of that. I promise. Woo. Thanks, Mingle. Hi, uh, my name is Jan. I'm a language student at Beta, and um, you had Bill Bishop on your show recently, and he moved back to America. He was uh, quite negative about recent developments in China. Um, you've Jeremy, you've moved, moved to the U.S. You said you want, you're moving to the Bay Area. Uh, I'm wondering if, or I'm curious to know if that's because you think some of the positive things about Beijing that you've described um, are fundamentally changing. Okay, so for me, I mean, I don't, Jeremy, you want to take a shot at this also, but let me quickly say, so first, Bill wanted everyone to understand that he had just been through a really stressful move and was dead tired and we were drinking a lot of whiskey and he got a little more negative than he was comfortable with. He actually asked me, could you consider not running that? Uh, so he is not as negative as he, as he came off, first of all. And he, was, he, he really wanted to try to make that clear and I'm glad I got a chance to do that now. As for my moving, it has nothing to do with anything except that you know my wife has rightly pointed out that I am somebody with no you know, actual talents or skills and, and that, that every advantage that I have enjoyed in life is it derives entirely from the accident of my biculturality and that if they can, if she can give and if we can give to our two children that same bicultural identity, she figures they ain't gonna starve. <laughs> That's it. That's why we're going. Well, I mean, my case is slightly different. Uh, I think the, the, the thing that made the decision, uh, you know, I mean, I used to smoke like three packets of cigarettes a day, so I never gave a shit about pollution. But my <laughs> daughter, uh, when she was about two, had respiratory complaints 
Yeah, it was the summer, the the the, the winter of the apocalypse. I the, told you not to have your smoking room in her bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> um, she had respiratory problems, you know, bronchitis, pneumonia, cold, flu, bronchitis, pneumonia, cold, flu, for about six months on end. And that kind of was like, oh, I think we need to do something about this. That that, that was kind of the thing that caused me to leave rather than anything else. Um, I mean, I, I have also reached a, a stage, I mean, I, I'd lived in Beijing for 20 years. It's quite a long time. Um, I do think that uh, this country does not, I mean, it's not an immigrant country. You know, I, I still, after 20 years, had to get a visa every year. Uh, you know, I'm still, you know, I was still a complete, Lawai, you know, there's no chance of me not being a Lawai. So only if I want to remain a Lawai for my whole life, do I stay here. Uh, you know, for that, for me, that that was also a consideration. Um, uh, I, I do think, you know, I find the current um, environment in China, the political environment, and for me particularly, the media and internet environment, a little disturbing. Um, I don't really like the way things are right now with the internet and the media. Um, uh, and that, I suppose, was a factor. But the thing that did it was my, my daughter's bronchitis. Um, and I do think that um, this is still a really wonderful place to live. I mean, it's really exciting. Uh, there's so many interesting things happening. You know, I always used to say that, the, you know, the future of the world in some ways is being made in this country. And if you're in Beijing, you have this great kind of, you know, front row seat on it. And I don't think that's changed. That, I mean, I think for me that was the pull of Beijing. It wasn't, uh, it was this idea that, wow, this is, you know, the next century. And I'm not even a believer in the Chinese century. I don't think China's going to just take over the world and, you know, America's completely screwed and uh, I'm not one of those people. But any problem that humanity is facing, uh, China is facing it first. And uh, many of the successes that humanity will have in the next hundred years, you know, might start in China. And that's just amazing to, to watch. So I would not be negative on, you know, somebody who wants to live here. I, I'm not leaving and writing one of those letters like why I'm leaving China because it's completely fucked. And you just did. I didn't. <laughs> I, I, no, I didn't. Not at all. <laughs> Let me just add one obvious thing, maybe too obvious to mention, but the times have changed, and in some sense, place no longer matters as much as it used to. When, when we first came, or when I first came here in the 80s, this was like Mars. I mean, you, you couldn't make a long-distance phone call. You, you didn't have the New York Times. You, didn't, you literally did not know what was going on. No one knew where you were. And now you can kind of keep... I mean, Jeremy can basically continue to do pretty much what he was doing in Beijing, you know, informationally from from Nashville because we're all wired together now. So, I mean, uh, although we, we had this argument with Bill, too, Bill was saying, no, it still matters. you got to be there, smell the smells, see the sights. It still does matter a little bit, and matter. we're not all really wired together, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I really like about the United States is that the, internet, internet. the internet works. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> You got, I, I spent like 20 minutes today just trying to find some information on what Xi Jinping was saying about how open the internet was. And I went, fuck, God, 20 minutes wasted. Yeah, cl clearly you guys need to work for my dude. <laughs> uh, you have the special secrets line, do you? Is that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, uh, we own it. 
All right. Hey, thanks very much. Thank you. I, I, well, I would want to add one more thing, though. You know, it was never the norm that people stayed. The norm was that people, people left. left. And, and the difference is now that you do have this phenomenon of long-term. So, you know, it should not be surprising people when long-term expatriates leave. What should, be, what should have been surprising is was that they, that they stayed. No, the bullshit. They're Jesuits buried in the city. Come on. It's been happening. Life That's because they ba- couldn't go back home. <laughs> 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 the ships were... <laughs> okay, great. Who are you? Hello. I'm a long-time listener, first-time questioner. My name is Bridget Riley, and I'm from Florida. Hi, Bridget. Hi. So, you guys have been talking about the past 10 years, but you've also been doing this podcast for five years. That's a pretty significant chunk of time. Can you talk about the original vision for the podcast and how that has perhaps changed over the past five years? Absolutely. Maybe, maybe adding an extra host, how that's changed the voice and, and your vision and how maybe you've come closer to that vision or changed it. I'm, I'm curious to hear that. So it really all started because um, Jeremy and I were in a conversation one night where we just said there aren't any good podcasts on China. <laughs> that's, that's really the origin of this. And then we, um, we said, but you know, between the two of us, we know most of the academics who are working here, most of the people who are uh, you know, in, in media in some form, many of the subject area experts, you know, because we've been around here for so long, just by dint of the fact that we've been around for so long. And um, both of us are, are naturally curious people. Both of us enjoy you know, creating content and creating media. So we just said, let's go for it. Uh, um, Jeremy came up with a brilliant idea of, of approaching David Lancashire. But we, we approached Dave. We said, so you cover our bandwidth costs and let us use your studio and do some light editing on our stuff. We, you give us this ready-made audience. We will bring you lots of new business. And it worked out marvelously. No money changed hands. Um, and, and that was it. So um, the, the transformations that we've made, we started off, of course, doing... Uh, a more newsy format. We would look at, at, at real current events, you know, what happened in the last week, and we'd bring in reporters to talk about the stories they'd written about that. Uh, we realized quickly that those don't happen. not Not so quickly. It took us a, took us a while. It was only six yeah. months. Six months later, we, we realized that, that... I think it was longer than that. Anyway. It was only about six months. Um, <laughs> we, we realized that, that we wanted shows with longer shelf life, that we would take on, you know, a, a much broader range of topics that people could go back months years later and listen to and, and extract real value from and it. also because if you you know i mean we're not a professional news organization that pays people so you you can't um you know if this week uh the news is the tangent explosion and we can't get anyone uh, who can talk about it you actually did that week that's true but uh, say as some other news event and you don't have the expert on hand then you can't cover it properly whereas if you don't do something directly tied to the the weekly news um, it gives you much more flexibility in terms of doing things and you can develop a backlog of stuff which is helpful uh, the decision to bring in David um, was just because both of us are just such fans of David um, I, I mean, I, I just no seriously. I mean, he, he's he's somebody who I don't use the word lightly, but he's somebody who actually is wise, uh, and 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 has uh, very uh, well thought through oh, ideas. <laughs> so the other thing about Americans, they're so sentimental. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. <laughs> Hello, my name is Joseph. I'm from Minnesota in the U.S., and I'd like to ask about an idea that Kaiser has brought up, um, not only this evening, but on previous times as well, this idea of parallel but somehow disconnected discussions or narratives between the foreigner community and the Chinese community. And my special request is kind of in two parts. For those of us who are here in person, who are not Chinese, what kind of intellectual salons or what kind of places can we go to to start to get involved in these communities? I get the impression that I can come to the bookworm and I don't need to know anyone and I can attend an event like this, but if I want to go to some Chinese parallel event, I would have to know that poet who's organizing it or I would have to have a personal connection to the professor who's organizing this. And for the um, podcast audience, what kind of authors or writers uh, what kind of articles should they look up? Where should they go to start to understand the discussions that Chinese people are having about their own country and how their society is changing? That's a very good question. Uh, there are resources that are available. I mean, one, one uh, way you can start, if you, if you aren't fluent in Chinese and yet want to hear a lot more, there's an organization called Think in China that holds uh, fairly frequent, uh, they do it all through the school year, uh, at the Bridge Cafe in Udalco, where they'll bring in uh, fairly prominent Chinese intellectuals, usually Chinese intellectuals, to speak in English about their topics of research and about broader topics. Uh, that's a very good, uh, good good forum to begin with. Uh, but, you know, I, th I think that, that just plugging yourself into a network of people who are like that, I mean, requires a bit of footwork, a, a bit of, you know, actually spending time, you know, out in Haidian and meeting people who are, you know, the, the academics. Uh, there are other groups in town, I think, that, that are, are, are very good at this. At bring, For example, the Car Carnegie Endowment, um, they do a very, very good job of bringing, uh, you know, influential Chinese thinkers, but, you know, usually on topics related to international relations, but that's a good, good way to, to, to begin. Um, the other thing is, you know, uh, the bookstores, right? I mean, you know, like Sanlian, Shudian yeah, still, has, still has, uh, you know, fairly regular salons. They have to be, of course, very careful about the, the subjects that they, they take on. But it's, it's and the bookworm itself, too. I mean, I think that I, I painted it un, maybe unfairly as being all la la. The, you know, Anthony, at the beginning of, of, of tonight's session, talked about uh, writers that they're bringing in, Chinese writers who will be talking about their literature and their work. Another way is through, through Pathlight and um, through Paper Republic. Uh, to see what's happening on the literary scene in translation. Uh, and, and again, our absent guest, who we failed to properly ridicule during the course of the hour, Eric. He's Hayden. too tall! <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think also reading is a great thing. I mean, you can read Chinese <laughs> newspapers and magazines. Uh, you know, uh, you know, um, magazines where uh, uh, there are Chinese people writing about China, um, and you can figure out yeah, who's, yeah, yeah sort of. Yeah. Uh, uh, you can figure out, you know, what people are saying interesting things, and then you can find ways to connect with those communities. I mean, as Kaiser did say a little earlier, you know, uh, it is Beijing remains quite an open place. It's easy to meet people if you know who to meet. Maybe I can say something too. Please. I think it's a good question, Joe Joseph, because. Uh, there really is a, a language problem here that, that there's a the language just you know asymmetry 
uh, Chinese people by and large speak much, much better English than we speak Chinese. And that's for two reasons. One is they're more motivated, they start earlier, and Chinese is much, much harder than English to learn. But the other reason is that, you know, once it takes, you, there's no substitute for just doing the work of meeting the people. And I, I think starting with, uh, with the online, there's a lot of stuff online now that with, with the, with the uh, aid of digital tools and stuff, you can actually read a lot of very interesting, lively stuff online. Used to be Weibo was one of those places and it no longer is. But, but if the, you have to get out and meet some people, go to a poetry reading, go to a, a, a talk. And they're, yes, they're usually at, at places like this, so salons, bookstores. There's a lot of you know, Buddhist uh, groups. They're all, they're all these little subgroups and they very often communicate by WeChat. So if you can meet some people, get on the WeChat group, get on the, uh, you know, the, the group chat, and start getting in that world, and then the language barrier will go away a little bit as you meet the people. And you be, but it'll always be hard to get into because, because it's much easier for a Chinese person to come here and interact with foreigners because of the language problem. It, you just have to do it. You have to, and your Chinese is good enough, I know, you can do it already. So. You just have to do the work, do the legwork. <laughs> Our next question. Hi, David, Kaiser, and Jeremy. This is a question for all three of you. My name is Roni. Um, for, I'm from China. For the past five or six years, I've uh, lived in Canada, where I studied as an international student. Um, so on multiple episodes of this podcast, you've shared indirectly or directly um, your advices for young and new journalists coming to China and hoping to uh, understand the place and write about the place. But my question for you today is, what would be your advice for, um, because for every new um, foreigner coming to China, there are probably 10 or 100 Chinese students going abroad. Mm. Um, I think you mentioned College Daily um, on the other episode. That is, that is great. Um, so my question is, what would be your advice for these young Chinese people ready to go out of China and study? Go very far away from all the other Chinese people for at least a little while. Like get out of the, get out of the kind of Chinese community that a lot of Chinese students find themselves kind of just hanging out with Chinese people. Um, and it's very difficult, I think, for a lot of young Chinese students because you don't have the same kind of culture that um, you know uh, in in most at least english speaking countries people learn at high school you know dating drinking drugs um the important things the important things uh, whereas young chinese people are studying really hard and then they, they 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 it's very difficult to sort of integrate with um local communities and I, i'm not saying that everybody should you know necessarily well maybe i'm saying they should take some drugs and drink uh, uh, a little more. Uh, but um, I, I think it's really important to kind of get out of that like Chinese ghetto that exists in a lot of, uh, at least what I've seen in America and Australia, um, a lot of Chinese college students find themselves in. Um, so how you do that, it's, I mean, it's as difficult as it is for a lot of foreigners in China to kind of break out of the foreign community. You have to put a lot of effort into it. But if you want to actually learn about another culture, that's what you've got to do. It's not always comfortable. You've got to step outside your comfort zone. I, I um, purely anecdotally, it seems to me that uh, there's a very different experience 
of men who travel, who go abroad for study, and women who travel abroad for study. Uh, the women tend to come back better socially adjusted to American society, better, uh, you know, more conversant in the language. They come back quite transformed and empowered, where uh, many of the men simply don't. Um, I think that uh, there are many reasons, very many complex reasons for that. Part of it, of course, is that um, a lot of white guys dig them Chinese chicks, right? Um, and you know, hey, it's not so easy for us, us Chinese guys. Uh, but um, maybe take some clues from, from from some of your Chinese female friends, see how it is that they're doing that. I mean, how how what is it that that makes them able to sort of assimilate and without losing that that quintessentially Chinese thing as well. Thanks, thanks, Ronnie. Looks like we've got one more here. Hi, I'm Matthias. I'm from Sweden. I got a question about uh, patriotism. What's the big difference between American patriotism and Chinese patriotism? It's a very good question. I think that the, the, the two of them are both kind of insufferable. Um, I, I actually I saw a question on a, a, a website that I quite adore called Quora. I was asking almost that exact same question. You know, what's the difference between, you know, who is more arrogant, Chinese or American? <laughs> and a, a, a very, very clever fellow by the name of Greg Blandino, who I've had the chance to meet and, and have some beers with, uh, every bit the, the, the smart guy that he seemed to be on Quora, he gave a tremendously insightful answer. He said that uh, they're equally uh, insufferable in, in, in their arrogance. But they're very different sorts of arrogance. Americans believe their culture to be, their culture, their values, their ideas to be universal. They have the arrogance of believing the universality of theirs. Chinese, on the other hand, believe their culture, their language, all the things that they're proud of to be uh, exceptional in a different way, impenetrable to other people only Chinese. Nobody else will ever get this. It's a, it's a completely different kind of arrogance, but it's equally bad. Right? Do you see what I'm talking about? I mean, is it? It's, it's yeah, that true. makes sense. But I, I mean, I think they're very similar in some ways. I mean, I, I found like living in the United States, like my neighbors have this big ass US flag flying from their, their you know, their porch. And I mean, in, in South Africa, I don't think I ever saw anyone put a national flag on their house. And I, I mean, I think in Britain, if you did that, like, I don't know, maybe you'd be like kicked out of your neighborhood. I mean, uh, uh, people in most countries don't put their national, I don't know, do, do they do that in Sweden? Uh, we go to Ikea. You go to Ikea, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you worship at the temple of Ingvar Kamprad, but you don't actually, do you put flags on your houses? No. no. Uh, I, I find, um, I mean, America and China are kind of like looking glass versions of each other in some ways, and patriotism is definitely one of the, one, one of the ways that uh, I think they are more similar than they're different. Yeah, I agree with patriotism that. Patriotism is not a shameful thing in America and China, whereas in many countries in the world, you know, excessive concentration on your love of country is, I mean, it's it, the last refuge of scoundrels, yeah, according right, to Samuel yeah. Johnson, right? Yeah, I, I agree with what Kaiser said. It's the, the thing they have in common is exceptionalism, like he said, and 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 there's there is implicitly but also explicitly the, the about the, the the Chinese model 
is is the, one, of, one of the differences between the thing we usually call like the Beijing consensus and the Washington consensus is that the, the Washington consensus claims to be universal and inevitable and the, 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 the I mean sorry the Washington consensus right. but the Beijing consensus claims to be unique and unrepeatable anywhere else and, and suitable only for the Chinese country right so that's that's one thing I would well, say that, that's, that's not quite accurate but okay <laughs> but I'm, I'm never quite accurate but it, um, but the other thing is I think it's changed the, 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 as I was getting to alluding to earlier the, the, the Chinese sense of uh, of national self has undergone a change uh, uh, from a sort of a victimhood mentality you know, to something that's more un what you would call a normal kind of patriotism. In the 1980s, you know, you would meet, I would, I talked to students who were patriotic, but the, the, the you know, the, the, the discussion after a few beers was always something like, we were the greatest country in the world, what happened to us? We should still be there, why did we fall? And, and it was a, it was a nationalism based upon a, a, a uh, an acute sense that in fact it was no longer the case, but that someday would be so uh, uh, again, right? You want to talk? <laughs> I think we should also get on with it, otherwise we're going to really bore right, but our I, I listeners. I do have something to say um, I mean, that's very germane to this particular topic. Uh, there are a lot of us who will encounter Chinese friends of ours who seem to be quite cosmopolitan, quite liberal, in, uh, and quite open-minded about things foreign, uh, and you find that when you scratch the surface on a particular number of questions, usually having to do with, say, Tibetan independence or Taiwan or, or, or the Uyghur question, this, this streak of deep-rooted nationalism suddenly seems to, 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 to come out. And it's, it's quite at odds with what you, you would come right. to expect from this person. And why is that? Let's understand why it is that, whereas an American liberal like, like, like me, I tend to look down my nose at somebody who's a flag-waving jingoist, and I think you know that is not compatible with a cosmopolitan, enlightened worldview, a, a progressive worldview. Uh, in China, the two are, in some sense, compatible. And why? Because they developed in lockstep in early 20th century China, liberalism and nationalism developed in lockstep, with one liberalism being seen as a means to the end of national wealth and power. They thought that liberal you know, political institutions were a way for a country to attain national wealth and power. And so that was the means. The end was always nationalistic. There was never a question. So when the two would come into conflict, which is going to win, the mere means or that noble end? Right. It's, it's a very, very... Let's get on to the next question. <laughs> well, he doesn't like it. Anytime I do anything vaguely theoretical... <laughs> <laughs> Theory Good sucks. Good evening, gentlemen. Um, my name is Hannah. Jeremy. I'm from uh, Kenya and the UK. Oh, great. And affiliated with an organization called the United Nations Development Program. Right, I met you at Silent One when I remember. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so great to, great to be here. And, um, and we want you on the show, by the way. Right. I will be on there. Oh, no good, good, good. Anytime. Um, but I'm on the show anyway. <laughs> so, uh, well, this, this doesn't this count. Just the beginning. This is just the beginning. Right. Uh, well, I had I had a question which um, relates to international policy, and also relates to some points that you were bringing up earlier in the previous discussion related to change. And I was wondering what your views are of how China's foreign policy has changed, and whether there have been more changes recently. Um, as compared to the past, and what your interpretations of those changes have been. 
Um, in particular, for instance, things like the One Belt, One Road initiative, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what your interpretations of those are? Well, that's a big one. Um, I'm, I don't know that I'm necessarily qualified to, to, to talk about this. I think that, that in, in, in a broad sense, uh, you know, China has long felt uh, that it has a, a, a sort of an historic claim to a certain greatness, that uh, its idea of itself as uh, not only a dominant power in East Asia, but one that has its tentacles extending quite far into Central and Western Asia. Um, this is part of its sort of historical conception of itself. Uh, I don't think that the one belt, one road thing is necessarily uh, anything more than what meets the eye. It's just, but I think that, that, that in a broader sense, in, in not, not specific to that policy, but uh, China's more sort of aggressive, bristly, sort of the, the you know, these, these, these islands in the South China Sea and, uh, and you know, the ADIZ with Japan and all, all of these things are a manifestation of uh, a real belief that, that there is a, an implicit policy of containment, you know, being visited on China by a U.S.-led uh, coalition. Uh, and also that the, the sort of post-World War II international order, you know, China was a weakling at the time, didn't really get what it deserves. What it deserves. Um, uh, and also that it's now rich enough to start swaggering a little bit. It doesn't have to ab abide by Deng Xiaoping's maxim of, you know, hide, hide your, your brightness yeah. and, you know, bide your time, that they can start, like, pissing off the neighbors, you know. So, uh, which is perfectly understandable in some ways. Yeah, I don't think any of the three of us are really real experts on, on, on Chinese foreign policy. But, I mean, there definitely has been a switch. And, I mean, I think 2008 was kind of the start of it. Uh, and Xi Jinping is, you know, the bruiser who's going to, you know, continue and, you know, enhance this policy of, of greater confidence, which is, is new. Yeah, if I were going to sum up the, the change that, that they're talking about, I would, I would say they've gone from, surprisingly gone from what we've assumed they were, the trajectory was going to be, which, which is which is to get on an international track and be incorporated into the geopolitical community, like IMF, World Bank, be a world player, you know, be part, part of the WTO, and that this was the future of China. And, and the, the upshot of all this is, is they've actually taken another attack, which is to create their own, to try to create their own global consensus with this One Belt, One, one, one World Initiative. That's the surprise that, that I think in the last few years is that, oh, oh, we sort of get it now. Oh, they're going to do that. The way I sort of characterize it is, uh, it's sort of like if, oh, well, if you're not going to let me play on equal terms in your sandbox, I'm going to get my own sandbox, which is the way it feels to me now. Great. Hey, thanks for your question, man. Get in touch. Hey, uh, I'm Kevin from New York. And hey, Kevin. Great fan of the podcast. Um, thanks. But I was just wondering that, generally speaking, the United States has this, the population of the United States has this idea of China as this sort of rising rival. And then sometimes it might be a little, uh, a little afraid of what China could be in the future. But what do you think the Chinese people think the American people feel about China? Like, what, what do you think their impression is about that? And just sort of that sort of extremely meta question, I guess. Sure. So what do Chinese imagine American impressions of China, China exactly. to be? Right. I think that, unfortunately, the sources that they... Would, would take such information from are the limited interactions that they have 
in the comment sections of, 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 of stories. And so I think many of them conclude that there's a pretty f fundamental hostility. Um, Pew uh, Research puts out uh, pretty frequent uh, um, perception studies. And they, they actually show this, that, that uh, they, 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 they ask people uh, what they think of other countries. And China does not ignore these. They see that there is a pretty s pronounced uptick in unfavorables that, that Americans feel about China. Um, I think that um, the things that, that tend to change that are, I mean, you, you find that this is very much not the case when you, f when you talk to people who have significant exposure to Westerners who have either studied in China or to Chinese who have actually studied abroad. They don't find that to be the case. Now, um, many Chinese will come back from their experiences abroad. Yes, some will come back very embittered. Um, some will feel like uh, you know there's an intrinsic racism that that um, the Chinese is, are, are kept down. But I think that there are all others who will come away with um, you know uh, a, a significant. I mean, it, I would just point you to 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 the research. I don't really have uh, you know a, a sufficient amount of anecdotal evidence that would be able to really you know help you answer that question. Let's take one more. Um, my name is Amanda, and I'm from Michigan. And hey, um, my question is: In a previous podcast, you briefly mentioned the century of humili century of humiliation, and subsequently discussed the rapid change that's occurring in China. Um, and my question is: How is this victim identity or hum humiliation impacting the speed and reach of this change? It's a good question. Um, I think that the the, the century of humiliation. Uh, meme is is one of these things that um, is can be placed can be put to very very instrumental uses. I mean, there are periods when it, it's sort of uh, dusted off and, and burnished and then you know held up and shoved in people's faces for very specific political ends. There are other times when when it, it gets slightly forgotten. I think that um, that it is put to often quite cynical political uses that um, there, there are ways to turn it on and turn it back off through the actual uh, curriculum in, 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 um, in schools through you know, the kinds of television that are shown to the broad masses, uh, through the kinds of editorials that are, are put in the major newspapers. Uh, I don't think that it exists. I mean, I think that uh, I think it's a, a very problematic uh, yeah, issue. I, I, I mean, there's a there's a reason for it. Um, you know, uh, China did suffer a lot at the hands of a lot of other countries. Um, but I mean, in my view, this is something that is actually holding China back at the moment. Uh, I think this is part of the same the inferiority complex that I spoke of earlier where, um, you know, like foreign goods and universities are better. Um, uh, as long as this thing is 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 repeated on a daily, literally on a daily basis on TV and on the internet and at school, um, I think this country is going to have a kind of a a, 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 a problem in its soul of not being comfortable with being Chinese. I read September third <coughs> though as an inflection point. I think that that a lot of people watched the parade and took away from it 
you know, this is the final end of that. There, were, there will no longer be the potential for us to suffer humiliation at the, at, at the hands of a foreign power. And I think that we may actually see that retired finally. I don't <laughs> agree with you at all. Okay. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, I think this has been a, 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 a <laughs> tremendously... She has, what she a, has what plenty a of chance to hear, to hear <laughs> my bullshit on this. So right, so, yeah, yeah okay. Uh, I want to thank you all very, very warmly for, 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 for uh, spending so much time with us. I've had a terrific time, and I hope you all have too. Uh, I Please continue to listen to the show and support us. Tell us what we're doing right. Tell us what we're doing wrong. And uh, go like our Facebook page, you know. And, and you know, get in touch with us. Thanks so much. Right, take care.